last Sunday night a uh, brief series on realized eschatology, and uh, that's the 70 AD doctrine. We want to talk about that just a little bit more tonight, and uh, then have a couple of more lessons on it, uh, and then we'll be done at least for this series. We have a responsibility, as we've already read from Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15, to see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. And so part of what we do in that regard is to teach on false doctrines, especially those that are causing trouble with brethren, and some brethren are losing their souls as they turn away from God because of this discouragement of such doctrines, and this is one of them. I told you last Sunday evening about the experience we had in Mount Dora, and a young preacher came there and got caught up in this doctrine and started teaching it in the church, and it caused a great deal of problems. And uh, some of us were able to study and to, to be strengthened and to, to not fall prey to uh, this doctrine, but some were not and still are lost in their sins as a result of this doctrine. And uh, then Beth and I, some months ago, were visiting with uh, a family she lived with shortly after becoming a Christian. They live in Alabama now, and, and in talking with him, he just made a, made a, made a point that that there are congregations that are dividing today over this doctrine. So I thought it would be good for us to study this so that we're aware of what's being taught and what the scriptures have to say about it. Um, I'm also in the bulletin article reviewing these lessons. So if you weren't able to catch the lesson last week, it's reviewed in the bulletin article this week. Or if you'd like a review, you can use that to review. Realized eschatology simply means the fulfillment of final things. In other words, all of the end-time prophecies of the Bible are already fulfilled, and specifically they were fulfilled at the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. It's called fulfilled eschatology or covenant eschatology. We'll talk about that tonight. You'll understand more about that. Or transmillennialism. You'll understand more about that tonight. Or preterism is what it was called dating back to the 17th century, still that today. Or kingism, because it's Max King who began teaching this uh, in churches of Christ in the early 70s or late 60s and, uh, and, and brought that into uh, amongst the churches of Christ. 70 AD doctrine is because all end-time prophecies were fulfilled at 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem. So all of the prophecies of the book of Revelation and in Daniel that relate to the end time, uh, this doctrine says we're all fulfilled with the destruction of Jerusalem. We talked a little bit about the perversity of this doctrine, and we looked at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that, that even in the first century, early after, after Christ, as the church was just getting started, that brethren were having a problem over this, and there were false teachers already teaching that the resurrection was past. And that's what this doctrine does, that the resurrection's already over with. The resurrection you read about in the Bible, that it already occurred at 70 A.D., and so it's already over. And so this has been going on for a long time and causing brethren problems for a long time. We noted Galatians 1 that those who teach this doctrine are accursed in chapter 5, verse 4. Those who believe it and, 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 and practice the things of it, that they have fallen from grace as they are severed from Christ. We talked about some of the sin that results from the doctrine. I don't know if Max King teaches anything, uh, these in particular, but I know that brethren have come to these conclusions that we should not absorb, uh, observe the Lord's Supper any longer because Paul says you do this until he comes, and uh, they teach that he's already come, so then you stop 
observing the Lord's Supper, which of course causes all sorts of problems. That Jesus is no longer ruling over the kingdom because the end things have come and the kingdom's already been handed back over to the Father. So Jesus is not ruling and that causes all sorts of problems such as the gospel is not in effect today. We don't assemble with the saints. We don't live, around, live under the word of the law of Christ. We don't have to obey the word of God and judgment has already passed. We uh, notice from the Bible, and we won't take time to look at all of these. They are in the bulletin review. But we looked at a number of scriptures that immediately contradict this doctrine. And, and you know, those who are caught up in such doctrines, whether it be this or another one, they, they, they dismiss and they overlook simple Bible scriptures that contradict the very basic things of, of the doctrine. And so is the case here, and we looked at these last time. We won't take time today. Now the first point I want to make in our, in our lesson this evening is that Max King begins with a, with a hypothesis. And uh, if you would in your Bibles, turn with me over to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 16 and I want to talk for just a moment that often false teachers begin with a, with a hypothesis. And they set forth something and, and maybe reason and logic, have some logic about it, and then set forth to prove their hypothesis with the scriptures. And of course they twist the scriptures to do that. But then they say, look, this is proven. This is fact. And so I want us to notice from 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 16, in, in, in the middle of things, that those who are untaught and unstable distort or twist. The scriptures, as some were doing there. And so false teachers take and they twist the scriptures. Now, now what they say, I mean, you know, Paul talks about, um, about words that people would speak and, and they sound wise and they sound like they make sense. And certainly Max King does here. You can read his books and it's, you know, sounds like it just makes sense, but when you tear it down and you really look at what it he's saying, you find out that it's a false doctrine and he is twisting the scriptures. We'll look at some of that in a moment and I'll show you from his book some of what he says. I want to go over to Matthew chapter 22 and give some examples here. First of all with the Sadducees. And, the, and, and where I'm going with this in just a moment I'll show you where Max King in his book The Spirit of Prophecy which is his first book that, uh, that, that, that really started all of this and caused all this trouble. He's written other books since then. I'll show you in his book in just a moment where he says plainly that he is set out with a hypothesis and he's going to see if it holds or not. All right, so he's, he's got this idea. He's going to set it forth. He's going to see if he can get scriptures to back it up and he says, well, see, I've got these scriptures so this has to be truth. I want you to notice that this is the way that false teachers work. The Sadducees, who their hypothesis was that there was no resurrection, and they use human wisdom to try to concoct some sort of hypothetical situation. Now, that's another thing. When people start pulling in all sorts of hypotheticals, beware. When they have hypotheses and hypotheticals, beware. This is a common tactic of false teachers. Well, the Sadducees had this hypothetical that this woman was married to a man and he died and she didn't have any children. 
So according to the Mosaic law, she was then married by one of the brothers, and then he died, and then another brother, and he died. And it ended up she went through seven husbands, all who were brothers, and the seventh one died. Then finally the woman died. So they asked, now whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? Because it's obvious that a woman cannot be married to seven men at the same time. And, of course, you know that in the resurrection you'll be married to whoever you were married with before. Well, Jesus says to them this, beginning in verse 29. He answered. Um, let me get over to the verse here. You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. And, and let me suggest to you, this is the problem with this doctrine we're looking at tonight, Realize Eschatology, and Max King, what he has done, and you'll see it tonight, you're just going to think it's so crazy, some of the things that, that he would say and conclude, that he is mistaken and does not understand the scriptures. Why? Well, because he set forth with a hypothesis rather than the word of God to understand what God has said. And Jesus goes on explaining, explaining from there. Now, I also want to talk about in some of the denominations today, and they set forth their hypothesis. One is that baptism is not essential for salvation. And they develop supporting logic and then scriptures that they can twist to back that up and come up with a hypothetical. You've probably heard this also. That there's a man in an airplane and the airplane is going to crash. And seconds before it crashes, he believes and he's saved. Well, he's saved without being baptized. Because it's impossible to be baptized while you're in a jet plane and it's plummeting to the ground. So that proves you don't have to be baptized to be saved. And then they'll pull out some scriptures like John 3.16. All you got to do is believe. And Luke 23 verses 42 to 43. The thief on the cross and the thief on the cross was forgiven by Jesus and he was saved without being baptized. Well, you see, there's all sorts of assumptions made there that you can't make. Number one... We do not know whether or not Jesus forgave the thief on the cross. That's not told us in the Bible. And number two, we don't know if he had been baptized before. We just don't know. There's a lot of things we don't know. And there's a lot of things they don't take into consideration that we've talked about before, which we will not consider tonight. But you see, there's this hypothesis and those hypotheticals. And ignore and dismiss scriptures such as Matthew 28, 18 through 19. How do you become a disciple of Christ? You're baptized. Mark 16, 16, Jesus commands us to be baptized. In 1 Peter 3, 21, baptism now saves us. All of those are ignored or dismissed in some way so that this hypothesis and this hypothetical can be supported. So now let's talk about Max King. I've got to talk about him because he brought this doctrine to the churches of Christ, and he is the one that came up with this doctrine that is taught in some churches today. He sets forth... His hypothesis then forces scriptures into it and concludes that it is then true, ignoring those scriptures that contradicted. And we looked last time at a lot of those scriptures that contradicted. I want to go now, and I just want to show you for just one second, a little piece of his book so that you can see for yourself uh, what he says. And this is at the beginning of the book on page 12, and he's just sort of setting up all of this thing. And he says here, right now, let us propose a very simple interpretive scheme. 
in the form of a mathematical equation. And he uses algebra here. You can see the algebraic formula behind me. And, and I tell you the truth is it would take Tom Tomley to come up here for me to understand this. And when a, when a teacher of the Word of God starts using algebra to make his point, beware. And so he goes through this thing. We have the time frame of Jesus' prophecy destruction of Jerusalem. Let's call that T. We have Jesus' description of his coming. We'll call that D. That's one side of our equation. On the other side, we have the same time frame, T, because we know that Jerusalem was destroyed. We also have, for lack of a better way to describe it, what really happened or what didn't happen, we might add, but cautiously, and that we'll call W. So our equation looks like this, TD equals TW, and he goes through there and explains all of this. Now, I want you to know just a little bit further down, let me scroll down just a little bit. And um, he says, near the bottom of the screen there, this is a very simple hypothesis. Red flag warning. A hypothesis has been set up before any scripture has been examined. And there are some things, once you know more about his doctrine, you will see there are some assumptions that he's made there without backing them up at all to come up with this algebraic equation that he says is this hypothesis that he is going to set out to prove. Uh, notice in this, he assumes there is one coming. Now, in a couple of lessons, we'll talk about some buzzwords. You know, false teachers and false doctrines, they have to come up with their own hermeneutic or method of interpretation. We'll talk about his in just a moment. And they also usually come up with a new vocabulary. His, one of his greatest words he uses all throughout his teaching is the parousia. And that's simply translated from the Greek coming, the coming of Christ. And instead of saying coming, he constantly says the parousia, the parousia, the parousia as if he is educating and telling you something that you would never know without him. And so he is assuming right here, and you may not even have noticed it, he's making the assumption there is only one coming. We'll talk about that in future lessons. And so since there is one coming, and we know that Jesus came with the destruction of Jerusalem, his one and only coming must have been the destruction of Jerusalem, and therefore all end-time prophecy was fulfilled because there is no other coming. That's his whole reasoning. That is his hypothesis, and it is faulty. Let me scroll down just a little bit and get near the end of this section, and I want to show you one thing here in talking about this hypothesis and the use of the hypothesis by false teachers. In the last, in the last section, in the last section of this, this, in the last paragraph of this section, he says, if our hypothesis holds... In other words, he's saying we set forth this hypothesis and if we can prove it from the scripture and if it holds, then it has to be true. Well, he twists the scriptures to make it, to make it hold and so proving what he thinks to be this false doctrine. So I want to be at this point to make the point that false teachers set forth hypotheses and hypotheticals 
rather than simply going to the Word of God and finding out what does it say and believing and teaching and acting upon those things. Now, to accomplish all of this, which also is, is normal, to accomplish all of this, he had to then come up with a new method of interpretation. Uh, there is no way, from our study last Sunday night, there is no way you can agree with even his hypothesis just from basic Bible scripture. So you have to have a way to get people to dismiss all of those scriptures that seem to contradict. The way he did that is this. He said, he, uh, we'll look at how he does it in just a moment. He goes through uh, two, two main ways to show that in the church, the method of interpretation is spiritual. In other words, there is not a physical, most of the time, not a physical correlation, but a spiritual correlation. And so we are not to take the physical interpretation, but a spiritual interpretation. And I tell you what, if you can convince people that is true, you can convince them that anything is true. And so that's what he does. Again, false teachers use methods such as this to deceive people. I want to go back here and and look at his book for a second so that, so that you see it for yourself. And I'm going to go to page 19 of the second edition. And I'm going to go down here near the, near the end of the bottom of this page. And page 19, the bottom of the page, he puts in there the method of interpretation. Now, this is before he's getting into a lot of his stuff and looking at the scriptures that he twists in order to bring about this doctrine. So he set forth a hypothesis, and he's made some assumptions and tried to show you that, that, that this is possible, that this is true. He, he has now, he's, he's going to teach you a new method of interpretation so that you accept what he says. And this is called there it is, the spiritual method of interpretation. Now, on just so you know, on page 55 of his book, he equates the method of interpretation to a hermeneutic. All right? And so you're familiar with studying about hermeneutics. So this is his hermeneutic. It is the spiritual method of interpretation. Now this becomes very important because in just a few moments we're going to examine the scriptures as to how he gets to this. But before we do that, I want to tell you a little bit about what it is. I, I, want, to, uh, I want to look at the bottom of this page, page 19. The spiritual method of interpretation is firmly established in the Bible. Huh? Well, what, do you, what do you mean it's firmly established in the Bible? Would you mind proving that? He never does. And it is the basics and primary method of interpretation involved in end-time prophecy. Really? Do you mind proving that? You see, but if you're just reading through this book and you're accepting it hook, line, and sinker, you know, he's going to get you. To put it simply, there is biblical precedent Oh, yeah? And where is that? You see. So he's making all of these statements, and he's not backing them up. Now let's go. I want to I go just a little bit further here. 
And I want to get down to the next paragraph here because he's, he, in this, he gives a little bit of insight on how he is going to, to, to twist the scriptures. First of all, he's got this idea. This is especially true in Christ's first coming to fleshly Israel and also with the respect to the last days of fleshly Israel. Since prophecy involves the two Israels of God, fleshly and spiritual, in the last days, uh, let me pause here for a second, in the last days, uh, that is a big buzz phrase of the 70 A.D. people. When they start talking about the last days, and you hear them talk about the parousia, red flag, just make sure a red flag goes up there. In the last days, one can expect to find a two-fold application of prophecy. We must recognize, however, that the spiritual method of interpretation is prominent among New Testament authors. Oh, yeah? Prove that, will you? You see? Uh, the spiritual method of interpretation had not even been invented yet. <laughs> he doesn't prove that. All right, let's go a little bit further here. And I want to show you what else he says. I want to go down to just a little bit further. And... Uh, and he brings up Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. And if, you're, if you ever study with someone and they start talking about Revelation 19 and, 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 uh, and verse 10 and say, well, well, this shows we use a spiritual method of interpretation, you can just about guarantee that they're, that they're of this 70 AD doctrine. So he uses this. This is where the, the, the title of his book come, came from, Spirit of Prophecy, Revelation 19, 10. Later on, later on, he'll use this. Um, he'll he'll use this uh, in in proving some things, and he makes he doesn't substantiate it in any way. He just throws it out as if it's already proven because it's already mentioned here in the book. All right, but he, he says this. While the context of this verse does not speak directly to the nature of prophecy. Okay, that's good. It does point to him who is the grand end and design of all prophecy, namely Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And basically, he takes a few paragraphs to say this. Although this doesn't directly relate to the nature of prophecy, because it says the spirit of prophecy, we have to have a spiritual interpretation to end-time prophecy. And he takes a couple of paragraphs to do that without any proof of it. While he already admits right here what the real deal is, He's going to take about two or three paragraphs and say, oh, yeah, well, we can use this to mean spiritual interpretation of prophecy. And later on, he'll throw this out. He uses it about four times in the book. He'll throw that out and say, oh, yeah, remember Revelation chapter 19, verse 10? Oh, yeah, this means this because of Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. All right, so I want you to see how he set that up there. All right. All right, let's see here. Okay, I think I'm ready to go to the next point here. I've got juggling a lot of papers here. Okay, so the next thing I want to do is show you how he comes up with this method of interpretation. And uh, it's, it's pretty complex. And, and, and you're going to say to yourself, probably just like I did, there is absolutely no way he could come up with this. And that's how crazy it is. And so, um, so just bear with me. And I want you to see the craziness of it, 
And then I'm going to share with you at the end of the lessons some scriptures that directly refute what he's saying. And because of, because of this covenant eschatology or transmillennialism, as he calls it, because it falls based on Bible scripture, his method of interpretation falls also. So let's look at that for just a moment. All right, covenant eschatology, transmillennialism. Go with me over to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. As I said last time, when someone comes up with a, with a doctrine and they start messing with the covenant, look out. Well, this is what he's done. Revelation chapter 20. I want to show you exactly what he's talking about. Transmillennialism, by the way, is a registered trademark of living presence ministries. Now, Max King is a rather old man now. He, he stopped preaching many years ago. He doesn't preach for a congregation. He has his interdenominational uh, organization here. It's the Living Presence Ministries, and you can, he's got a bookstore with it, and you can buy his books online. Transmillennialism, that's his tra tra trademark. His son, Tim King, now is the one holding and, and putting forth the banner now of this doctrine. Uh, and Tim King says this, in the summer of 1999, we invented a new word, transmillennialism. And so I want, the point I want you to know here is that transmillennialism was invented in 1999. That's when the word was used, first time, and, and, uh, and, and, and they trade, uh, put a trademark on that. He, uh, Tim King says, as a prefix to millennialism, okay, now, millennialism refers to the thousand years. If you look here in Revelation chapter 20, and it talks about the thousand years there, um, uh, the end of verse, the end of verse 4, thousand years, that's the millennium, all right? And, and there's all sorts of doctrine around the millennium. There's premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism, and now transmillennialism. And that this thousand years was a transitory or a transition period. And I want you to read these verses, verses right here. When I saw thrones and they sat on them, Revelation 24, and judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been headed because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. I'll, I'll show you in just a moment. He says that this period, this millennium period, was the period between the cross and the destruction of Jerusalem. Now you count that up, that's 37 literal years. So he's saying the thousand years here in the book of Revelation was literally only 37 years from the cross to the destruction of Jerusalem. I'll show you a chart, a chart from his book in just a second. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were complete. This is the first resurrection. Uh, he believes then that would be the resurrection then at the destruction of Jerusalem. Blessed and holy is the end of those who has part and so on and so on. Uh, the end of verse 6, reigned with him for a thousand years. So millennialism, covenant millennialism, he's talking about this thousand year period. Transmillennialism, he's talking about this thousand years. Now, go with me over to Galatians chapter 4 and I want to tell you where he gets gets all this from, and then I'll show you his chart. But I want to 
want to look at this scripture with you here. This is his proof text. This is the major text of the whole doctrine. Lord willing, next time I'm going to, to take the book of Galatians and from within the context of Galatians, I'm going to explain the allegory here that begins in Galatians 4.21. Galatians 4.21. I'm going to explain it from the truth of the gospel in contrast to this false doctrine that he's twisted out of it. Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. Now this is the allegory between, between Abraham and his two sons. Ishmael represented uh, was born of the, uh, the woman that was enslaved, and that represents a covenant of bondage, and of Isaac, of the free woman, and that represents a covenant of freedom. Verse 21. Tell me, Paul says, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who, uh, who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are, not, who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. Those are Christians. But as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. That persecution is going to be important here, what we're talking about tonight. So it is, all, so it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. So he takes this allegory. And this is the chart on, in his book, Figure 3. He says, here is the allegory. This is Abraham. And Abraham had two sons, Ishmael by Hagar and Isaac through Sarah. And this Hagar, rep, this Ishmael represents the covenant, Mosaic law and covenant, and, and comes over here to the old Jerusalem, the Jewish world, and Palestine, this is Sinai. Here is the cross. Here is 70 A.D., the destruction of Jerusalem. Here with this shaded area is the tribulation, he says, spoken of in the book of Revelation. And he says that during this tribulation, that just as Ishmael and Isaac coexisted, so did both covenants of God coexist. That sounds a little crazy, doesn't it? In other words... The Mosaic law and covenant were in force and the law of Christ and the covenant we have in Christ was in force at the same time simultaneously his word is that they coexisted. That's really super important to understand because in just a few moments we're going to look at a few verses from the Bible. There is no way under heaven you can believe that if you believe the Bible. Absolutely none. 
But he says that these coexisted. Now let me show you. Let me show you. Uh, let me show you in his book here. I want, to, I want you to see it with your own eyes. And I've got to go to uh, one second here, and I've got to turn over to page 58. So we're going to his book, The Spirit of Promise, and we're going to go to page 58. I want to make sure that you see this stuff with your own eyes, and, and, and I, don't, I don't want you to just believe me. I don't want to be just somebody standing up here saying what some guy said. I want you to see it yourself. All right, here it is. As long as Ishmael and Israel coexisted, neither received the inheritance. And in order for Isaac to receive full inheritance, it was necessary to cast out Ishmael. Paul's purpose, therefore, was to motivate all to become and remain children to the free woman, for the inheritance was not going to be shared. Let me scroll down here just a little bit. Not to be shared by the children of the bondwoman, fleshly and spiritual Israel, coexisted from Pentecost until the destruction of Jerusalem. All right? So there is an overlapping then of both of these laws simultaneously during the millennium, the thousand years of Revelation chapter 20, which was a literal 37 years. There was an overlapping of these two things. Now, uh, I want to go to the Bible, and let's see what the Bible says about this. And you're probably saying in your mind, there's no way this can be true, and you are absolutely right, and uh, I suppose many of you already are pulling up a number of scriptures just in your mind. I want to look at a few of them. First of all, let's go to Acts chapter 2. And you think about this, that both covenants coexisted, both laws coexisted, and the significance of that if it were true. Now, again, he uses this to prove the spiritual method of interpretation in that there was fleshly Israel and there's spiritual Israel, and today we are living in the time of spiritual Israel. Therefore, we have a spiritual method of interpretation. This is how he's got to that. All right, Acts chapter 2, verse 37. You remember the story here so well. Peter's been preaching. Men and brethren, uh, people say, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, don't worry about it. Both covenants are intact for another 37 years. He didn't say that, did he? If it were true that both covenants, both laws were intact and coexisting, when they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter would say, just keep doing what you're doing until 70 AD, then you've got to change. That's not what he said. He said, verse 38, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Well, if Max King is correct, Peter is a liar. <laughs> because they didn't have to repent and they didn't have to be baptized and their sins were already forgiven because the Mosaic Law and Covenant was perfectly intact at this time. And that's just not the truth. Remember in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 19, Jesus said to be a disciple, you have to be baptized. In Acts 4, verse 12, Peter says, there is salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through, 30, 34 through 48, that Peter preached salvation to the Gentiles, and they were not given an option. Obey whichever law you want. You can live either, under either covenant. They're both in existence at the same time. That's not what he said. There was only one covenant and one law in existence at that time, and that was long before 70 AD. Now let's go to some scriptures that get more to the heart of the matter. 
Go with me over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Again, the doctrine being presented here by Max King is that both covenants coexisted and were intact together. And because of that, then, we have the obligation to use a spiritual method of interpretation today. That's our hermeneutic. Colossians chapter 2 and beginning in verse 13. Beginning in verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees, or maybe uh, ordinances, uh, your Bible says there, against us. Now these decrees or ordinances, these are laws. Now what law was canceled out? Well, it was the Mosaic law. Read on a little bit further. Which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, nailing to the cross, that is an, an analogy. Back in these days, if you owed, if you had a debt, and you were paying on this debt, when you finally had that debt paid, you would take and you would nail it to something such as a fence post. And that showed that that debt was canceled. It was taken out of the way. You had no further obligation with it. Jesus took the law, the Mosaic law, and he nailed it to the cross, took it out of the way. There is no longer any obligation to it. It is no longer in force, is what he's saying. Uh, let's go over, well, well, verse 15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. All right, now let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And Paul to the Ephesians is going to make the same point, but in a different way. Here we see that at the cross, the law, the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant was taken out of the way. There was no coexistence. No coexistence. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought far, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one. All right, now, Max King would say there were two up to 70 AD, and that both were coexisting together. No, that's not true. Christ at the cross brought both into one. There were not two any longer. He says, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity. Okay, what was the enmity? It was the law of Moses. He abolished that. Get this. The law of Moses was abolished at the cross. There was no coexistence. Keep going, verse 15. Which is the law of commandments? This enmity is the law of commandments. The law of Moses contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man. Again, not coexisting, one, not two, thus establishing peace. Now look at verse 16. And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. The old law was put to death at the cross and abolished. There was no coexistence of it. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. With Max King, there would be two laws going on simultaneously. 
There would be the Mosaic law and there would be the law of Christ. That's not the case. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 12. Verse 12. For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom those things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one is officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was, uh, was descended from Judah, a tribe with reverence to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. In other words, Paul is saying here that the law was changed. That the law of God was changed from the Mosaic law to the law of Christ. There was a flipping of the proverbial switch. That one immediately ceased and another immediately began. There was no coexistence between the two. Let me suggest to you, if there would have been a coexistence, and Jesus Christ was a Jew by birth and lineage, he could not be priest at this time of which this letter was written. He could not be priest from the cross until uh, that Mosaic law was put out, put away, which Max King said in 70 AD, it would be impossible for Jesus to be priest right when this was written. And that was just not so. Just not so. All right, let's go over to Romans chapter 10. Now, according to Max King, both laws, uh, both covenants coexisted, so then we must conclude that the Jews would have been okay. Didn't have to do anything. They were all right. And that was not the case. Those who continued to be Jews and to practice those things were lost. There was no coexistence of covenants or laws. In Romans chapter 10 and beginning of verse 1, uh, Paul talks about the, 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 the state of Israel, those who rejected Christ and kept doing those things of the Mosaic law and covenant. Romans 10 verse 1, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing what God's, for not knowing about God's righteousness, get this, and seeking to establish their own. Now this was written before 70 AD. It was written during this period between the cross and 70 A.D. It's written about Jews living at this period, and Paul says they are seeking to establish their own righteousness. There was no coexistence of covenants and laws. If there were, Paul is a liar, and I choose to believe Paul. Now go on just a little bit further. Again, verse three: For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their uh, to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Here, they these were practicing Jews in the period between the cross and 70 A.D., and it says that that uh, um, uh, it says there at the end of verse three. Uh, that they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. That means it's absolutely impossible that the Mosaic Covenant and law was in effect. Absolutely impossible. There's no way Max King can be right. Verse 4, for, get this, for Christ is the end of the law. That's the end of it. There is no more of it. There is no coexistence between the two. Let's look at one more scripture tonight. That's Galatians chapter 1. 
Now, it's, it just so happens, it just so happens that there were a group of people at the time that the Apostle Paul was teaching and preaching who believed something sort of similar to Max King. And that is that both covenants and law were in effect. And that you had to basically keep both of them. And uh, what does the Bible say about them? Galatians chapter 1 and, and beginning in verse 8. Uh, of those who would teach such a thing, and let me suggest to you that Max King would be right here with them. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And then that's repeated in verse 9. That if anyone who preaches that you can or you must keep part of that Mosaic law and be saved in doing it, is accursed. And you remember so well, so well Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4, of those people who believe this false doctrine... Verse 4, you have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. Here are people who are seeking to be justified by keeping the Mosaic law, doing exactly what Max King is preaching, and he says you are severed from Christ and you have fallen from grace. I don't know how, how much plainer it could be. If you believe what Max King taught and practiced that you were severed from Christ and fallen from grace. Max King's spiritual method of interpretation is built on the false doctrine from Paul's allegory of Galatians 4, 21-31. And we cannot believe that nor use it in our study of God's word. Three major things to remember from this lesson. Again, from part one, we, we examine what we're talking about. We examine a number of scriptures that just plainly refute what's being said, that, that, that all of the end-time prophecies of the Bible, they're all done. The resurrection, it's over. The judgment, it's over. Rising up to meet with Christ in the sky, it's over. None of it today. We saw scriptures that contradict that. What to remember from tonight's lesson. The spiritual method of interpretation. If you hear someone talk about the spiritual method of interpretation regarding end-time prophecy, beware. It's probably the 70 A.D. doctrine. This is a false method of interpretation built on false doctrine. Number two, the allegory of Galatians 4, 21 to 31, Abraham and his two sons, and what that proves regarding anything of the end time, know that this is probably, what they're talking about, it's probably the 70 A.D. doctrine and a false interpretation of the Bible text. Number three, if someone's talking about the coexistence of the Old and New Covenants, that they coexisted, that they overlapped, that's what it's saying, that they overlapped, this is a false doctrine. They were not in effect at the same time. We've seen that plainly from Scripture. And if you hear someone talking about this, they're probably talking about something that has to do with the 70 A.D. doctrine. Both laws, both covenants did not coexist. Well, Lord willing, what I hope to do is go to the Bible, the book of Galatians, and let's see what it does say. Let's see the context in which Paul used the allegory and what the allegory truly is talking about so that we understand the truth of the matter. 
And then from that, I want to delve in just a little bit more into the 70 AD doctrine. And, and my goal with that is simply to familiarize you with the major terms and phrases so that someone, when someone starts talking about it immediately, red flag, 70 AD doctrine. That's what I would like to be the result of that. And so that won't be a very lengthy series, uh, a very lengthy study, maybe just one, one lesson to do that so that you know the key terms, what they mean by it, and what the Bible truly says about it. That's our lesson. Let's get our songbooks out. out. We'll offer the gospel invitation number 380. I appreciate so much Dennis leading us in songs that look forward to that which is true. That there is a resurrection that we can look forward to. That there is a rising together to meet Christ in the air. That there is a judgment and there is an entrance into our eternal abode with our Savior Jesus Christ to live with our Father forever in heaven. I'm so glad that we have that hope and that we've been singing songs about that tonight. It won't be very long and this life shall end. It won't be very long and Jesus will descend and then the dead from beds of clay will rise to meet the Lord and King up yonder in the skies. It won't be very long. What a wonderful hope we have to look forward to that day. If you're not a Christian, if you'd like to become one, simply believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, repenting of your sins and making your confession that Jesus is God's Son and being baptized for the remission of your sins, you too can have that hope. Or if you've strayed from the truth, you need to correct that tonight. We'd like to pray with you as you confess those things and repent of those things and have that hope once again. If we can help you at all tonight, why don't you come to the front now as we stand and sing.